0: So, Parth, what have you been eating?
1: Thanks for asking, Trent. Nice to see you, by the way. Oh, uh, you're you're too kind. What did I? Ha- I had a Welch's fruit snack pack. You ever had one of those?
0: All the time. I love them. So it's still to this day.
1: Yeah, they're classic. I I was in my basement and I was kind of hungry, but not like you know when you're kind of hungry, but you you don't you're not hungry. You just want something to snack on.
0: Yeah, oh, so like a snack?
1: Yeah. So yeah, so um, uh, I I was in my basement, and on the floor, I just see this this random pack of Welch's fruit snacks. It was abandoned? It was abandoned, and my parents don't buy fruit snacks, never really, as a kid, which is why they were so- Origins unknown. Exactly. And you scraped
0: it off the floor?
1: I scraped it off the floor and just devoured them with like, like a primal beast-
0: Well, a a real quick detour about you picking up off the floor. It's reminded me when I was in like fourth or fifth grade, my parents would never buy Sunny D and I really liked it and would, Mm. you know, go over friends' houses to drink it. And one time there was a, a Sunny D underneath Chris Fleming's basement couch and boy, did I drink it. Was it good? Um, the memory is kind of foggy, probably because that, you know, expired Sunny D did permanent brain damage. Mm. Um, they often do. Yeah. Everything after that point has kind of been, uh,
1: do you think you actually liked Sunny D or did you just want it because you couldn't have it?
0: Um, I mean, like I wasn't allowed like soda and I didn't like that, but there was definitely a taboo factor. It's Mm. like. I wasn't that into violent video games, but I would go over my friends' houses explicitly because I wasn't allowed to play them at home. It was the same deal with me. So what I I was working at the restaurant got a shift meal. It was a panini. Um, most what kind of, of chicken in it or turkey? I'm trying to do less red meat because like I'm still a bad person, but I'm trying isn't, to be. Isn't chicken white meat? No, it's it was turkey, and turkey is white meat. Oh 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 okay. And yeah. I, I'm saying for the reason that I'm trying to eat less red meat for, you know, the environmental factor and how I'm still definitely a bad person, but not a good enough person to, you know, be a vegetarian again.
1: Trent, you'll always be good enough for me.
0: Good enough to start a podcast with. That's wow. kind of you, a... You, wait, you, wait, you, wait.
1: You set me up for a great little... Have you heard of these things called segues?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a transition.
1: Oh, so you have heard of them.
0: So tell me a little bit about the, um, the intro music.
1: It goes a little like... Yeah. And then okay. and then we'll cut in. Right. Yeah,
0: and yeah, no, I see what you did there. Awesome. And it
1: goes like Welcome back to Craft Services, our show where we talk about the movies. We have a podcast
0: about film.
1: Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on that movie. This week we're talking about Before Sunrise, and with us we had, who did we have?
0: The script supervisor Monica Petrillo, and was she delightful? I forget.
1: Delightful, wonderful, intriguing. Uh,
0: Interesting, uh, wonderful. Did you use that?
1: Gener- yeah, I think I used that one, but uh, g- g- it's, it's okay, it's okay.
0: Overall amazing, just like, is uh, an awesome person.
1: Yeah, she was, she was really great, she was really nice with her time, she offered up uh, a few other people for us to interview, and um, maybe we'll
0: take her up on that, we'll see. Maybe, but we part, part don't we kind of have our hands full, interview-wise? Like, I know we can't tease it out to the listeners.
1: No, not yet. But yeah, let's just say, currently we have enough episodes lined up till July
0: 18th. To keep you bastards busy for the next few months. But until
1: then... You just have this episode to keep you entertained.
0: But if information is ever leaked about future episodes, um, it's definitely at the end of the episode because we think the few generous people who are nice enough to listen to the outro music, they deserve the secrets. But you beginning of the podcast people, strap on your fucking seatbelts if you want the, the inside information. To everyone who leaves halfway through, thanks for listening, but also disrespectful.
1: I was gonna say "fuck you," but um, you you put it much more eloquently, Trent. But yeah, this was Monica Petrillo. She was super cool. She talks about, you know, working on Before Sunrise, working on Sharkboy and Lava Girl. Wait, wait, wait!
0: Did she work on Spy Kids two and Spy Kids three?
1: Trent, she did. I know that's hard to believe, but wait,
0: wait, wait! So the humble viewers at home are gonna look at me with a straight face and tell me they don't care about uh, Spy Kids two and three?
1: Well, we're gonna have to find out because um, we could see whether you are listening in our analytics section of our where we upload our videos.
0: Bad news, listeners. Every time you listen to our show, we get to to see you. So if that doesn't... Entice you? Yeah. Uh, Guys, we don't actually have cameras in your houses, okay? I just wanted to clear that up before we started the interview. And here's Monica Petrillo, the script supervisor of our film for this week, Before Sunrise. And I'm going
1: to continue this bit. And now the film projector's gonna go off like. <gasps> right? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah it's a sound effect that we use.
1: And now it goes off like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Monica Petrillo. She's a script supervisor who's worked on such projects as Spy Kids 2 and 3, Grindhouse, and the HBO show Barry. She also worked on our film for today, Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: My very big pleasure. (laughs)
1: Uh, So just to start things off, uh, what was your relationship with film as a kid?
2: Huh. Um, So I actually grew up in Germany, uh, in Munich. And when I was about six, I attended a ballet class and one day a lady walked in and was looking for um, two little kids to be extras in the back of a TV show to dance around in the background or whatever. And I uh, was chosen. And so I, that sort of started a, a bit of a child acting phase of mine, I guess, in Germany. So I was on a couple of TV shows as a kid actor and I fell in love with filmmaking. I thought it was the funnest place to be. And I, for a while I thought I wanted to be an actress, but then when things got serious and I actually decided what to do with my life, um, I thought it would be more fun to be behind the camera to direct.
0: So with that being said, uh, I read that you moved to uh, the United States. And then you started working production jobs. And I was wondering what your first job on set was.
2: Um, that's right. Yeah. So I actually started working in Munich. I started um, on a TV show in, in Germany as a script supervisor because I was told that if I wasn't going to go to film school, that was maybe the best job on set to to learn because you're right next to the director and you you interact with every single other person in the crew. Um and you're right there where the movie's being made. So I um, interned in Germany on a TV show and then ended up doing my first job there and worked on a couple of different movies and a couple of TV shows. And then I moved to New York uh, when I was 20.
0: And what was the first motion picture you worked on?
2: The first motion, so I worked on a TV movie in Germany, but the first motion picture was in New York, actually, it was a movie called <laughs> a quirky little movie called I Was on Mars. It worked out perfectly because it was a German-American co-production. So it was a great opportunity for me to get hired for the first time in in New York um, with a uh, German director and lead actress. And we it was a little indie, low-budget indie movie we shot in New York. And it was really fun. And um, I can actually still tra- trace back every single job I've done since then to that job. I guess that's kind of how the industry works. It is kind of how it works, yeah.
1: (laughs) So sort of pivoting a little bit, uh, you worked as a script supervisor and we were wondering if you could explain sort of what the responsibility of a script supervisor are on set, off set, and sort of what what your job is.
2: Sure. Um, So a script supervisor is typically the person that spends all day right next to the director. Um, You keep track of continuity. So these you know, nice film flubs that people like to watch. They're like, oh, wait, wasn't he wearing a blue sweater? Now he's wearing a red sweater. Or like, wait, they ran through the rain. How come they aren't wet? That sort of thing um, is one of the responsibilities of the script supervisor to make sure that those continuity mistakes don't happen. A script supervisor also keeps track of all the shots that you make, works together with the director and the DP and how to break down a scene into different shots, make sure they can be edited together without crossing the line or like confusing visual things and uh, keeps uh, keeps the actors on track um, about their lines, their dialogue. I also keep notes for the editor so everything we shoot you know gets written down and um, then submitted. To so I, it's also kind of a liaison between the director and the editor in terms of you know what you shoot on set and then how the director sort of sees that put together in the editing room so, During prep, I break down the script into all its individual pieces. And that's where, you know, you sort of come up with a continuity line. You make like a day breakdown and you determine exactly uh, when every scene happens and what the continuity and the connection between the different scenes is. So then later on, when you do scene five and scene 19 and scene 42, you can quickly look up in your own breakdown what it is that you need to make sure happens in those scenes. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Also, for TV shows, it's important. um, As a script supervisor, you time the whole script beforehand. So let's Mm -hmm. say you have a 30-minute show. That means it's supposed to be um, 28 and a half minutes long. And so if they have a script that already, um, in pre-timing, times out to be 38 minutes or whatever, then that could be a problem down the line because then they have to cut out things that really hold the story together. So um, it's important to time the script beforehand during pre-production and then you know alert the director to for example if it's too long or too short and then as you're filming you kind of keep track of it to each scene how long it is does that make sense yeah
0: yeah very <laughs> much so so uh pivoting forward to our topic of the day how did you get involved with before sunrise
2: so before sunrise i think was uh it was in 94 so that's 20 full 27 years ago and I, um, as I said, everything goes back to that first job I did in New York. Uh, Lee Daniels, who was first assistant cameraman on this little movie I did in New York, had started working with Rick Link later. He's, they're both from Austin and they had done Days and Confuse together. And so when I went to Austin the first time to work on another lo- low budget indie movie, um, Called love in a 45 i met with lee and we had a beer together and he said you know you should really meet rick because you speak german and he wants to do this crazy movie next that he wants to shoot in austria and there are going to be a lot of people speaking german and it would be really helpful to have somebody who can speak both languages and he should hire you and so i met rick and uh we kind of hit it off and so you know a couple months later i found myself in vienna working on Before Sunrise.
1: So what kind of a relationship did you and Richard Linklater have um, in terms of how often were you communicating and that sort of thing?
2: Uh, Well, we communicate a lot. I mean, generally, the director and the script supervisor communicate frequently, constantly on on set. Um, Like I said, you sort of tend to sit next to each other and kind of, you know, often in a a good relationship, the director will look over and just kind of see for you, give him the, the nod and. Or you, you go up and say if there's a problem. Um, so with Rick and me, we, we, we did like each other a lot. And um, I thought about it uh, after you guys asked me to do this interview. I actually just re-watched the movie last night with my daughter, which was very fun because it's been such a long time and I now have a 18-year-old daughter myself. So it was very fun to watch this movie again from a different perspective. Um, and then I thought about it and I realized that I think Rick and I both learned some key things during the making of the film. I learned from him. So I was at that point in my career, I was it was early enough that I had just sort of gotten good as a script supervisor in terms of catching mistakes. But what I ha- I hadn't learned, what I now consider 50 percent of my job, which is to have the right diplomacy and the right how to bring it up. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and so Rick is extremely laid back. He's he does not like stress or anything. You know, he's very <laughs> cool and laid back. And when I initially when we started working together, and I would go up to him and I would say like, "Look, Rick, this is never going to cut together. They're they're saying something different every time, and they're they're you know doing something different each take. How do you want to edit?" Like I was very panicky like that, and he just shut me out. Like he just wouldn't listen. Like he would just turn away and yeah, yeah, yeah. don't worry about it. So over the course of that film, I really learned a very important lesson. And that is that it's only half of the job is to catch the mistakes. The other half is to learn how to communicate it, you know, because ultimately right. a script supervisor's job is basically to tell people that they're doing something wrong. Right. Yeah, you know,
1: like <laughs> You're basically. messing up right now.
2: All the time, right. You're like, oh, you didn't say your line right to the actor or like, hey, you put the wrong costume on to the costume person. or Hey, we, you know, we crossed the line here and nobody likes to be told that they're doing things wrong. So you got to kind of learn how to.
0: You're like a parking attendant, like you never deliver good news.
2: Right, exactly. And so uh, um, I think I don't know if Rick knows this, but I think he really taught me during that movie how to do that. So instead of So by the end of the movie, rather than what I just described to you, I would go to him after like take two and I'd be like, hey, Rick. So, um, you know, Ethan and Julie, they're kind of have a little variety in what they're doing. You might want to sing maybe in addition to the overs. Maybe we should also get some singles because then you can just cut it in any way. And like that just sounds very different, you know. And so um, I think I'm very grateful to him. I really learned that in the course of this film and on him on the other hand he told me later on because we ended up doing um two other movies together and he told me later on he said you know I really learned a great lesson from you that film and that is that he didn't you know initially he didn't listen to me and so he was like then I got to the editing room and I realized like best improv is no good if you can't cut it together because
1: if it makes no spatial sense or anything
2: well if it's just you know if you have two people talking and you only cover it in two over the shoulder shots and they're both in both shots and they're in completely different places each time then Mm -hmm. you can't cut back and forth and so um yeah so I think we both learned something from each other which was nice
0: So with that being said, with like the differences between takes and uh, how there's a little room for improv, I feel like as a script supervisor, how do you like if if something good is happening on the day? How like is there times when it when it's allowed to make the final cut? I guess if it it doesn't, you know, create a plot contrivance or something like that.
2: Sure. Sure. I I think ultimately I've learned that um, like there are things you can get away with. There are some you, you kind of have to know what you cannot what what what's important. Like, for example, if somebody turns around, right, they walk away from you and then they turn around and say one more line. If they turn over their other shoulder, mm-hmm. that there's no way to cut around that. Like, that's a very important one to get right. But then there are little things like if somebody, you know, took a drink from their water at a, a line later or a line earlier or something. That's easier. It just means you cut one line later. You know, that's not that right. big a deal. And I also learned when I when I worked on um, Silicon Valley. Um, I don't know if you know that show. Of course, yeah. we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a a big uh, learning curve for me about improv because there we had like six guys who are all improv masters, right. and I learned that if 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 somebody is really good at improv. They have like their spiel down, and you could, um, they could repeat the same improv. So that's the, the the main difference, you know. If an actor isn't just randomly doing something completely different on each take, that's hard. But if 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 actors know, like the good ones, they will say in the same space and just say a different line, and then they remember what they did and they can repeat it when they're, you know, the opposite actor is when it's their take. So does that make sense? So right. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I I was going to say with Sunrise being a all-in-one day movie uh did that make your job easier or harder
2: Well it made it easier with regards to costume you know as you may notice they basically wear the same clothes except Ethan changes after the tra- train he realized that wearing a red turtleneck was a bad idea because it was way too hot in July in Austria um but then since we filmed this movie was unusual in a sense that we filmed it almost entirely in sequence like mm-hmm. that never ever happens but Rick that was very important to them because they wanted to develop the relationship and the story sort of as we were filming it to some degree and leave room for the ability to refer back to something like you might remember at the end Ethan or Julie says to Ethan I think oh by the way we never went to that those guys play of you know the
0: the, the the cow show the cow, i always wanted oh, right. to see it
2: yeah <laughs> And so if we hadn't shot that other scene before, because those guys kind of made all that up, then they added that line in later. Yeah, and with regards to it taking place all in one night, um, that was also highly unique. So because most of it is all at night, we basically filmed the movie for four weeks or five weeks at night, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which made it wonderful. Like, if you're in Vienna at, like, July, the night is only eight hours long. And so we had this challenge that to fit all this work into eight hours and so we had a very unusual uh, schedule we would start at 6 p.m and we'd all meet and we would rehearse the entire night's work and lay down marks for every single scene everything then we would eat dinner and at 9 p.m when it was finally dark we would film all the way until four thirty or whenever the sun would come up so we didn't have the usual 12 hours of shooting time that most movies have. We only had very little, but we kind of like just powered through at that point. Um, And I have the most amazing memories of biking home. I borrowed a bike from somebody and like biking back to the hotel at five o'clock in the morning when the sun rose in Vienna and, you know, seeing the garbage trucks and like (laughs) going back home, going back to the hotel to sleep. Um, It was very, yeah, it was a very... um, memorable experience
1: what, what i was going to ask is what was there any improvisation on set for this movie because i i feel like it seems like a pretty to the script movie but I, I mean i don't know what the process was on set
2: well they they were um ethan julia and rick were working on the script constantly like they as we were working they kept um changing things and adapting things um and there was some amount of improv but they had sort of the points, you know, during, I mean, it, it was a script and they did, as long as they stuck to the sort of main points of the scene, then th- that worked. Right. So there was only mm-hmm. within, within the, within the certain frame, there was improvisation. I know it seems very improvised. Even my daughter last night said like, are they making all this up? Mm-hmm. But um, I was like, no, that's just good acting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, being as I'm sure you saw last night, uh, the there are a lot of like really good long takes like the walk and talks, and I'm sure I mean, just because it covers so much ground, I would imagine like getting permits for that could be complicated. Or I was wondering if there or if they were stolen shots or if it t-
2: took a bunch of takes. I'm very curious. So it depends. I, I don't know for sure, but I don't think there were any stolen shots that nothing I was aware of. But yeah, they had permits, and we would rehearse the whole thing. I remember rehearsing at great lengths to see how long, like a walk and talk, would take. For example, when they're walking along the river, and then they end up right next to the poet, mm-hmm. who says like, "Hey, hey, you want me to write you a poem?" Um, that obviously had to time out so that they get to that point. I remember one other thing: the the infamous um, fairy um, Ferris wheel scene where they kiss. You know that's sunset of course and the first time we shot it we didn't get the whole scene because the ferris Mm -hmm. wheel stops and they hadn't accounted for that it is a that big ferris wheel and they you know get to the top and you stop and then it kept going and it stopped again and like we had to wait till we were back at the top and then it was too dark because sunset only lasts 10 minutes or something so we actually ended up returning at dawn one day to shoot the remainder of the sunset scene.
0: I I feel like, uh, the beginning of the movie shot on a train. I mean, just because you're constantly looking out the window would pose a unique, uh, challenge for, for background continuity. Was
2: was that the case? That is the case. And I, I mean, watching, rewatching the movie last night, I noticed that I'm sure not many other people noticed that as much, but I know the editor had a real challenge editing that scene, um, because of the background and the, we, we shot that in between Vienna and Salzburg. So the train just goes back and forth there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the this not only the background, but the speed the train was going was varying. Mm. And so I think that was a challenge for the editor.
1: When you, when you had to like reset a shot, did you like have to go back to the place where you were? No, we, like were in a,
2: we were in a regular train. Like it's okay. not a train that was only for us. It was a train okay. that was like going regularly between Vienna and Salzburg. So, the train wasn't stopping for us at all. Oh. We, we we just had, we had, it, it just kept going. And so that's why the background just was whatever it was.
0: So how many trips do you think you took back and forth in order to get all the train stuff?
2: Um, I don't remember. I feel like we <laughs> shot, <laughs> I feel like we shot maybe two days on the train in the beginning. And there was one more day at the end when Julie gets on at the end. Because we weren't going to shoot that at the beginning that, Mm -hmm. had to really be the end.
1: So um, other than obviously the aforementioned Ferris wheel scene and the train stuff, do you recall any scenes that were like really difficult to like get through or to get done specifically?
2: Um, I remember being really excited when I, you know, there's a scene in the tram when they're going, Mm -hmm. when they're just sitting in the back of the tram and they're talking the whole time. And so... I don't know how well, if you know Vienna, but Vienna has uh, basically a, a road that's called the Ring that goes all around the center of the town. And there's a tram, this streetcar that goes basically in a circle. So it was perfect for us. It kept going in a circle, and we were just sitting in the back of the tram. And that one we were all nervous about because you had no way. There was there was no way to. They didn't want to cut it. It was supposed to be all one take, and I think we had maybe a limited amount of time to get that. But we did it, I think, two times or three times, and boom, it was great. So we were all very excited how well that worked out. I remember that.
0: Uh, Speaking of your work with Richard Linklater, we saw you were listed as additional crew on Boyhood, and we were wondering what work you did on that.
2: Oh, so Boyhood, as you may know, was shot over the course of 12 years. And so each year they shot just with whoever, you know, they basically hired a crew for three or four days to shoot that year's work worth of material and one year I happened to be in Austin because I was working with Robert Rodriguez on a movie and so they hired me one year when I was in Austin
0: wait which period of, of the movie of boyhood
2: I think it was um, the fourth fourth or fifth year I can't tell you anymore exactly which year it was like the, you know the boy was maybe uh, he was a young teenager he was like 12 or so <laughs> that's mm-hmm. what I remember
1: um, so, I'm glad that you brought up Robert Rodriguez because we wanted to talk about your other work with him. If you could speak on Spy Kids 2 and 3, um, those are childhood
0: classics, I would say. <laughs> and Shark <laughs> yeah. Boy and Lava Girl. Yeah, you've really struck an emotional core. We're, we're, we, were, we were the target audience for that.
2: Oh, that makes me happy. Did you guys see the new one, We Can Be Heroes? Uh, I we, did not. We, we saw that you worked on it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has uh, Lava Girl as a grown up. Mm
0: hmm. So, so tell us how you got involved with Robert Rodriguez and how one led to the next.
2: So, uh, well, I was actually working with Rick Linklater on the Newton boys in Austin and (laughs) Rick and Robert are friends. And so one day Robert came by the set to visit and Rick introduced me to him. And so that's kind of how I met him. And so then when he did, um, Spike It's 2 he was looking for a script supervisor he hadn't yet found a script supervisor he was happy with and so he asked me to come and I thought that sounded great <laughs> so I yeah so that's how I started on Spike It's 2 which was super super fun
1: yeah so j- j- how how did your relationship with or like how different of a director is Robert Rodriguez because he seems like he'd be kind of a different style
2: well that's a good question um i would say so I've I've actually worked with all three Austin directors Robert Rodriguez Rick Linklater and Mike Judge they're all three out of Austin and the the thing interestingly enough the thing that all three of them have in common is that they are all basically introverts and very quiet shy men mm-hmm. Rick is yeah they they're all very mellow and and so the their style of filmmaking is very different obviously right. and. Yeah, Robert works very fast and sort of has everything in his own head. And if he could, he would do it all by himself. But yeah, I think Robert and I have done now seven or eight movies together, and we we've gotten a good form of communication. Like a Latin, and we we hear and understand each other really well. And I know his style. And yeah, don't know what else to say. Robert likes to work with the same people, so that's that's been really nice that over the 15 years or whatever we worked together it's basically been the same crew more or less
0: so uh, uh on set is would you say the most common errors you're catching are they dialogue based is it items shifting around on a desk is it wardrobe like what is and like what's like your your pet peeve in that regard or, or what seems to keep coming up
2: uh it's very different it totally depends on what the job is mm-hmm. you know it, it depends on the actors it depends on it it could be any of the above. Um, I think the my if you're asking for my pet peeve, the thing that bothers me personally the most is when a director or or a DP crosses the line. Like that mm-hmm. is really like that because I think that's something an audience, the average audience, doesn't know. Mm-hmm. They, they don't understand why it looks weird or different. It's just disorienting to them. So it's it's like a visual rule that you know people don't people don't know they just look at it and they feel like somehow it doesn't feel like they're connected or they're not talking to each other but they don't know why so yeah that's something that bothers me if people i i have worked over the years i've worked with people who just say like oh who cares everybody knows where you are in the room and i disagree
1: right is hair a difficult thing to keep track of because i feel like i always watch movies and I mean, obviously, you're shooting this over, so, like, you could be shooting a scene over a couple of weeks. So, like, hair just seems like a very difficult thing to keep track of, and I always notice it when I watch a movie.
2: Oh, that's interesting. You mean like the length of hair? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like
1: length of hair and like how it's, I don't know, like, set up, sort of. Because <laughs> lots of times in like a shot reverse shot, you'll see like, oh, that was done with two different takes. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 it can be challenging, kind of depending on. The, the hair that you have, obviously. Um, um, I've worked when you, I've worked on long TV shows where you have to come in and regularly trim people's hair, but trim it just a little bit. So it's not from one day to another. It's, it's, it's drastically different. Um, or women often have hair. the yeah, That is like in front or in back. And, and that's where a really good hair person. Uh, makes a big difference because they are watching the monitor and they pay great attention and they'll hop mm-hmm. in when they see something or even i mean actors the, the the most professional of actors they know how to sit so their hair doesn't fall forward mm-hmm. or backwards.
1: And, and this is again sorry to keep harping on the hair but when <laughs> when like a, a man or something like they have like stubble or something does that mean yeah. that like the makeup department has to like or like hairstylist or whoever has to like really carefully like make sure it's the same length or are you sort of like
2: sure sure i mean i've worked on you know on sin city where we had to just they, they try to schedule around that so if some if an actor has a stubble for part of the movie and not a stubble any other one then they obviously try to schedule it so that all the stubble scenes are hopefully together but every now and then you can't do that and then the, the hair makeup people have to put a stubble on like mm-hmm. basically glue it on and try to match it
1: oh wow you glue oh
2: man Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) You can't wait two days for the stubble to grow.
0: (laughs) So nowadays in your day-to-day life, just like watching bad TV and stuff, are you like hyper-focused to find, I'm sure like you're not going out of your way for it, but do you accidentally find yourself noticing the continuity errors?
2: Well, people ask me that a lot. I'm sure. The truth is, if if a movie is good, if a TV show is good, I don't notice the mistakes. Mm-hmm. I, right. don't notice, um, I don't notice I don't notice wardrobe or makeup or such mistakes. I do notice when they cross the line. that really bothers me. Like it just it's jarring to me and it annoys me and it bothers me. but the other stuff doesn't. Uh, when it's good, you know, people good performance will always trump any kind of little wrong, yeah, something missing or yeah.
1: So you spoke about working on Silicon Valley. Um, I just was wondering how you got involved with that. Was was that just another Austin connection, or
2: that one was actually not an Austin connection? I had um, I'm trying to remember, I had just finished working on some movie, can't remember now which one, but uh, yeah, and they called me um and brought me in to interview, and but the thing that I remember from that, is I met Mike and Alec, uh, Berg, for the interview, and. Mike was, as I said, he's a shy man. And he said to me, he's like, look, I'm supposed to interview you, but honestly, I don't really know what I should ask you. Like, um, And, and uh, so I told him, said, look, I personally think for a director to choose the right script supervisor, there's one thing that is more important than anything else. And that is, can you imagine being next to this person for a long time and sitting next to them without being completely annoyed sure. and he laughed and i think that's going to be higher but it's true like you don't want to sit next to somebody who either talks too much or not enough or who is kind of got bad breath or is annoying or keeps whatever so yeah
0: a, a big part of your job description is, is being tolerable like over a long period of time
2: exactly yes you got that right <laughs> so i try to be tolerable
0: So I I saw you worked uh, on two episodes of The Mandalorian as a second unit script supervisor. And I was curious about that.
2: Yeah, that was just a few, a couple days um, where I went in for a friend who, who, yeah, where they had second unit. It was fun, too. I mean, I saw the little baby, the little green baby. Sure. And and, um, it's a lot of visual effects. So it was on stage with blue screen. And
0: was it exclusively on stage with blue screen?
2: Uh, one day I worked actually Robert Rodriguez directed one episode and, um, which was super fun because they needed second unit on that day. So I got to see him and we shot, um, actually out in Calabasas in the, in the, that rocky area over there. Um, uh, we shot a, a fight between stormtroopers and some other people. I, I actually don't know much about star Wars.
1: <laughs> it's all good. Um, <laughs> going back a little bit, um, You were uncredited on Zoolander, and that seems like a an interesting movie. Uh, What what happened there to be uncredited?
2: Oh, I actually I didn't know that's how they noticed it. I just did a day. It was uh, additional photography. Yeah, they needed to do that. Was Mm -hmm. just after the movie was finished. I just went in for a day.
0: Uh, So looking forward on your imdb it says you will or have been working on avatar two and three and i was wondering what's going on there
2: uh so if, if
1: disney uh, doesn't have a sniper rifle currently pointed at you in case you reveal spoilers he, <laughs> if you yeah,
0: can reveal anything. <laughs> you, you speak in very vague terms
2: very vague i also just did second unit on that so they've been filming both avatar two and three simultaneously for the past couple of years it's a long long project and um it's entirely filmed you know it's like filmed on stage and with using motion capture and and then they've shot in new zealand but i wasn't part of that so i just did a um i've worked repeatedly doing second unit on on stage and in a in a large tank where they were filming in a tank and it's a very different movie, everything you know because it's motion capture there's there is really it's not the traditional kind of filming actors it's it's all the actors wear uh sensors and basically their yeah their motion gets captured and then it's the rest is computer generated
0: so I was looking at your work outside of the script department and it, it said in two thousand and six you uh had a film called fly about and it like showed at south by southwest and uh can you talk can you speak on that
2: yeah 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 so i've uh, like i said i always you know was also looking to directing and wanted to direct and so i made a feature documentary in 2006 called fly about um which is about uh a trip i took i, I basically i got a pilot's license when i was 24 out of a crazy idea, and then I circumnavigated Australia uh, together with my dad in a Cessna 172, and I made—I just took a camera and filmed the whole thing, and then spent a number of years editing, and so that became the documentary Flyabout, which yeah, it did went to um, it did go to South by Southwest, it premiered there, and it ended up being on TV, and it's on Amazon Prime now, and it's had kind of a long life already.
0: Was doing the documentary the inspiration or was it just like I'm doing this and I'll record it and then you had a bunch of material and you started editing.
2: You mean was it the was was it the inspiration the good to go on it or what happened first the trip or the movie?
0: Uh, as in what was the first idea to do the trip or to do the movie about the trip?
2: So I had wanted to make my own film for a while already. And then unrelated to that, I decided today de- that I wanted to get a pilot's license. And once I had licensed, then my dad and I decided to go to Australia and fly there. And then one day I just realized, wait a minute, this is, why, why don't I make a movie about this? Like, I have no idea what's going to happen, but this is bound to be interesting when you go down under and you fly a little plane and who knows what's going to happen. And so it, it was more like somebody was pointing a big red arrow at me and saying like, this is it. Here's your movie that you got to (laughs) make. Sure. So
0: So how long did the circumnavigation take? And uh, I'm sure there were like some, some windy and windy moments along the way.
2: Yep. There were definitely windy moments. Um, So we flew, it took us four weeks to circum we went literally around the circumference of the continent and flew 72 hours i think in in all there were definitely hairy moments weather wise but also what ended up happening and i least expected that was that my dad and i actually had some some personal conflict uh I, I
0: i was gonna say that's a lot of small talk to make.
2: yeah it's well my yeah so he also had gotten a pilot's license after I did because he sort of after I got my license he felt really envious and said he always wanted to do this and this was always his dream in life to get a pilot's license and so he'd got one too and then we thought like oh we'll just go to Australia and you know be co-pilots and switch off but the problem was neither one of us was very experienced and Mm. so and I'm not a flight instructor. So that caused some issues in the cockpit because I ended up taking the wheel from him a couple of times and that didn't go so well with the father daughter dynamic. And, but you'll have to watch the movie to see (laughs) what (laughs) happened.
1: I'm I'm sure it was good. uh, You know, material.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went down when I first left, I didn't know much about documentary filmmaking at the time. And so I, I just watched a bunch of documentaries before I went as an inspiration. And one of the films that I watched was Sherman's March, which is kind of a classic. Mm. And uh, that kind of inspired me to just take the camera and sort of turn it around on myself. And it's, it's kind of people now that watch it say like, Oh, you kind of were one of the first people to do a vlog basically. Mm. Mm. Um, Like I took selfies before that was a word. (laughs) Um, And I also learned from watching German's March that you don't always, like you might set out to make a film about something, but then life happens and you realize, oh, this is really about something else. So when I first returned from Australia, I had 25 hours of footage and I thought, oh, I I went down there to kind of find myself and have this spiritual revelation and well, that didn't happen. It was very different. (laughs) And so the film ended up becoming about what happens when you don't find what Mm -hmm. you set out to find what did you learn instead
1: well I think um, Trent should we ask the big the big kahuna so I guess barring uh, Before Sunrise as you were so nice to rewatch what was what's the last great film you watched
2: the last great film I watched um, okay so I will say one of my greatest favorite movies um, is Hunt for the Wilder People
1: Oh, that's an awesome movie.
2: Yes. And uh, my whole family loves it. And we have watched it several times. And uh, we've even watched it while we were driving around New Zealand in an RV. And when I joined the Mandalorian one day, I got to work with Taika Waititi. So that was really awesome. Really? But Hunt for the Wilder People is everything I think a movie should be. It's funny.